Philosophy and science fiction have this particular thing in common, and that is that they're both really good at thought experiments. The Galactic Empire is falling. So here's a thought experiment. Civilization is ending. What do we do? Welcome to a very special episode of Selden Crisis, the podcast. We won't be diving into the first chapter of Foundation and Empire, the General, quite yet, so I'm sorry to disappoint you on that front. Instead, we have something of an entirely different order, an actual guest appearance by someone very familiar with Foundation and Isaac Asimov, who has studied the core trilogy in depth and has some special insights to offer, without breaking our no-spoiler rule. Before introducing our guest, however, I want to briefly thank some of the people who have made this podcast a success beyond my wildest dreams in only a few months. First, I want to thank someone in my own family who's contributed more than anyone else, my own son, Jeremy McKinnon. When I started rereading the Foundation series last summer, I felt I had to share it with someone and was thrilled to find an accomplice in the joy of reading it in someone under my own roof. He started reading it before I'd even finished and read all seven volumes to my complete delight. He became a big fan of the idea of creating a podcast and lent his talents as a video editor in producing the video trailer for season one and designed and produced each of the many preview videos I've been posting on the Selden Crisis video channel. He's also been a great sounding board for podcast ideas and offers much needed constructive criticism of each episode. I hope to be able to leverage his creative talents throughout the series. Another wonderful collaborator has been a friend I've known since high school and a longtime musical companion named Tom Barnes. I came up with a simple melody idea for the theme music and shared it with him last fall, and Tom enthusiastically transformed it into the evocative and magical theme music that begins and ends each show, along with variations to use to link the sections together. It wouldn't have the same feel without his excellent work, and I look forward to more from him in future sessions if I can maintain his interest in contributing his efforts. I'm extremely grateful for all he's done. A creative effort like this needs visual representation, and I knew I needed something special to honor the power of Isaac Asimov's vision. Who better to create such a look than someone who had demonstrated success in the past? I reached out to the artist who had created book covers for all but one of the seven Foundation novels and all four novels in the Robots series, a guy named Mike Topping, and asked him if he could create an original logo for the series. I asked him if he could incorporate a raven into the graphic to represent Hari Selden and somehow imply the magic and mystery of the Galactic Empire and the Foundation all in one graphic, and boy did he deliver. I've been thrilled to post his graphics dozens of times and never get tired of seeing them. Mike can be found online at despotica.com if you would like to engage his services. Lastly, I want to thank all of the listeners and dear supporters who have made it possible to continue this series. I love doing it and get a lot of joy from it, but especially love hearing from all of you out there who appreciate the effort. There's one person in particular I want to call out by name. I had the pleasure of virtually meeting this 
writer of vibrant and superfuturistic science fiction named Tobias Cabral in the past year, and read a couple of his works, including a gripping tale called New Eyes, filled with nail-biting action sequences and featuring romance crossing the boundaries of cybernetic and biological life forms. You can find my review on Goodreads, and I'll add a link in the show notes. Tobias is a wonderful guy, and though I've never met him in person, he's one I can call a true friend. He's lent his enthusiastic backing of my intentions to make this podcast, and I am very grateful for his support. Without further ado, let me introduce another friend and supporter of the show, who I had the privilege of meeting online even before the first episode dropped. Let's meet our distinguished guest. My guest today is Nathaniel Goldberg. Nathaniel is a professor of philosophy at a university in Virginia. Besides more traditional classes, he teaches a special topics course on philosophy and science fiction, in which he has his students read Asimov's Foundation Trilogy against the ancient Greek philosopher Plato's most famous work, The Republic. Welcome, Nathaniel. Thank you, Joel. It's a pleasure to meet you and to be here on your podcast. Why don't you tell me a bit about yourself, including your introduction to Asimov? Sure, it would, would also be my pleasure. So I first discovered Asimov when I was a teenager. I was visiting my grandmother in New York. I've got that little bit in common with uh, the good Dr. A. We're both New Yorkers deep down. And she had in her bedroom a book, an anthology, a collection of golden age science fiction short stories. I later learned it was my aunt's. She had done a science fiction class in college. And lo and behold, as I started reading through it, I came upon this short story called Nightfall by this author named Isaac Asimov. And it was years later, years later when I was in high school, that my high school 10th grade English teacher um, happened to have sets of the Foundation Trilogy. And I talked to him and he lent them to me and the rest is galactic history. So, yeah, I, I'll tell you how I found him. I, I guess you know, since you've listened to the podcast. <laughs> As a teenager, I just discovered science fiction because my dad was into it, and my dad had lots of science fiction on the uh, our bookshelves at home. So I read as much of that as I could, and I'm not sure what the first Asimov I read was, but wasn't Foundation. But when I found Foundation, that changed my life, as you know. Well, I, I, remem I remember when I was reading Nightfall, learning that Asimov had written it, I think, when he was 19, or, or he published it when he was 21. And at the time, I was 13 or 14, and I thought, no worries, I've got years to be that successful, because the gulf from 13 to 19 is like centuries when you're a 13-year-old. And then as I creep closer and closer, and time started running short, I'm now in a spot where I teach college students who are roughly Asimov's age when he wrote that story. And I like you know, needling them a little bit. Like, what have you done with your life? Have you written a, a world-changing science fiction short story? That's the segue to a world-changing trilogy. Or haven't you? And, you know, they look at me and think that I'm goofy, but they usually think that anyway. So some more Asimov in my back. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm really curious about your class and would love to hear you talk more about it because I, I would have loved to have taken that class when I was in college. So I'm really curious what the students, how they respond to to your uh, yeah, the, the syllabus. Sure. So I, I guess to fill in a little bit beyond my just the asthma part of my life, I wound up getting a PhD in philosophy 
and then wound up teaching at three different universities. I started in Maryland, and then I was in Ohio, and now I'm in Virginia. And where I currently am, I was encouraged to do a special topics course. We all are occasionally to do something like this. So as you said in your kind intro, I'm doing one called Philosophy and Science Fiction. And the idea was each time I taught it to pair a different work of philosophy with a different work of science fiction. But Joel, I've got to tell you, the first pairing, Asimov and Plato, just stuck because it just works so well. Hard to beat and, that one. Yeah, for both both reasons. And I don't want to say too much about it because the course relies on having read the whole trilogy. And your listeners, including myself, since I'm a listener too, have so far only gone through the first book in the trilogy with you. But that was the that was the connection and the motivation. What, what is, how do they react to this? We have to read this Asimov guy. I mean, I would think like, really? I get to read Asimov? Not sure how, uh, how students react to that now. Asimov is, uh, is somewhat dated. The trilogy, as you mentioned, was composed of short stories that were written just in the 40s, at least initially. Is that right? Joel, am yep, I getting yep. the chronology? He wrote them right? in the mid to late 40s, I believe. And even though the trilogy was so influential, and it's hard once you read it not to recognize its influences, it does come across somewhat stilted sometimes to students, or at least they wouldn't have heard of him. But like you, I'm really excited about the Apple TV dramatization or interpretation of the trilogy to get more people interested in it. Yeah, but we uh, also have our uh, misgivings about what we might, how they might treat the the subject matter. We we absolutely do. In fact, if I can share an anecdote uh, between the two of us, on I forget what social media platform, but on one of them, I've for years used the the um, alias Gal Dornick. I don't even remember where. But I commented on your podcast after you and I had already met, but I used the pseudonym Galpernick. And, and you replied something like, uh, well, thank you for commenting, Gal. You're one to know or something like that. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, I've uh, used that for years and I was excited to learn that I'm a woman in the new trailer uh, and in the Apple TV because we all should learn to walk in other people's shoes. Um but at the same time, I was reminded, and you asked, how do my students react to the trilogy? They do wind up really liking it. They, they really do by the end. One of their criticisms, though, is that there are so few women in it. Yeah. And I'm glad that a relatively minor character like Dornick, it doesn't really matter what gender. But that's one of the criticisms of Asimov that my students have. So I feel like I've talked a bit now about you know, philosophy and, and Asimov and, and some of the pros and cons or reactions of my students, at least on that subject. I really appreciated when you had talked a couple episodes ago about Asimov's handling of women and his sort of background and how that influenced or didn't influence his portrayal of them. So I'm curious, and maybe your listeners are too, if you could say a little bit more. I'm, I'm glad you brought this up because I wrote that part a few months ago uh, that I read off uh, on a podcast a, a couple of uh, a couple podcasts ago about his treatment of women and his lack of women in the in the uh, foundation up to that point a complete lack and uh, I wondered about it like and I hadn't really done my homework enough to know why 
he was the way he was in that area. But since then, I've really plunged into his autobiography called I Asimov, which is a pretty thick tome and covers a lot of the feelings about how he felt about himself and how he related to to different people. And he was definitely aware that he had shortcomings in the area of dealing with women. And a lot of it was that when he was young, uh, his parents had a candy store. He had to work there from dawn to dusk. He never got to meet women much. Uh, he never got to date. He, he went to boys' schools. Um, and his first date with a woman was a double blind date. And he ended up falling in love with the woman he was set up with. And that was Gertrude. He said she looked like Olivia de Havilland. She was so gorgeous. And he fell in love with her. And she never really reciprocated the love he was feeling for her, he thought. Uh, so he always kind of had a, a chip on his shoulder about it, I guess. But, and but he, did think, he, he did marry her, is that? He, yes, he married her uh, mm-hmm. and he lived with her for 24 years, which was quite a while for what felt in the autobio like a mismatch. Mm. They were very different and she actually resented one of his major like character aspects, which was that he just loved to write and write and write all the time. Didn't like to travel. He didn't like to socialize. He just liked to write and write and write. And she thought she, she felt neglected, you know, and he, you can tell from the bio that he felt that he neglected her and also his family. You know, he once asked his daughter who he was just, obviously he adored. He said, have I been a good father? And she said, you've been a busy father. And that really like stuck with him. Mm. He realized something from that. You know, that, that reminds me of a description I read once of Frank Herbert. So his son, um, Brian, I guess, is that right? Yes, was asked about his father. And maybe you know this, that Brian and so Kevin J. Anderson have written prequels and sequels to the Dune saga. So he, Brian was once asked about his father and he described him in somewhat similar terms. He said that, he remembers his father not spending time with him he, as much as he'd like, and he remembers his father working on, on Dune, at least Brian didn't know at the time. And then when he finished the first draft, he just locked himself in his room for a couple of days and slept. And that, wow. that makes me wonder, there's some, something about passionate people and passionate writing. Well, and, and you were just referring to your feelings of like, when are you going to be able to catch up with Asimov yeah. right? when mm-hmm. you were young? And I kind of, I probably had that same feeling. And sometimes I've thought, wow, I'm such a slacker compared to people like Asimov. And when I think about it in these terms, like, you know, at least my, my wife and son don't feel completely neglected by me constantly writing and or doing something other than being with them. And I do travel and spend time with them. So, you know, being a, a real human being, it has its pluses. I and, endorse uh, that. Uh, yeah. my, my, my wife's glad I'm a real human being too. <laughs> and I'm can't say I'm a perfectly real human being. Sometimes I'm too much like Asimov and get in my own self-obsessions, like having a podcast and spending well, a lot of time working on it. Well, speaking of obsessions, in a way, this lets me answer or continue to answer a, an earlier question you asked me, uh, actually the first one about me and my introduction to Asimov. And I could say a word about philosophy in Asimov too. So one Please of my... Do. 
Yeah. So one of my obsessions, I guess, surprise, surprise, is thinking or overthinking or overanalyzing, sometimes to my detriment. And I discovered, I guess, relatively early in life, probably the time when I started reading Asimov, that it was a more productive of more productive use of my time to explore. I can't resist to explore strange new worlds in thought rather than obsess about actually things in real life. So there's that that bumper sticker, something like what reality is is for those people who can't handle science fiction. Yeah, yeah, so, I like that one. Yeah, yeah, and I found philosophy too mm-hmm. because they're both you know, intellectual exercises and one ding that philosophers always get is that it's only intellectual. And to some extent that's fair, to some extent it's not. That is, there are applications, there are ethics boards at hospitals, and there are uh, philosophers who were basically invented logic. And once upon a time, you know, everybody, Isaac Newton called himself a philosopher. So there are connections that are practical. At the same time, philosophy and science fiction have this particular thing in common, and that is that they're both really good at thought experiments. So a thought experiment is like a lab experiment where you have a control, you have an environment where you're trying to tweak just one thing and keep everything else the same. Mm-hmm. And then you see what happens if you tweak that one thing, you know, increase the pressure, add radiation, um, you know, deprive the bacteria of sunlight, whatever it is. You don't do everything, you do one thing. Mm -hmm. And I found that science fiction, at least good science fiction, usually does things like that as well. So Asimov's thought experiment, well, he's got lots in the Foundation Trilogy, but the the big one, I suppose, is the galactic empire is falling. So here's a thought experiment. Civilization is ending. What do we do? And then, of course, he proposes. And he proposes more than just a simple, straightforward thing to do. There's the founding of the first foundation there's the mysterious second foundation which we'll find out about there's the working through of this thing called psychohistory but in a way these are all sort of thought experiments that work together for making a really engaging story yeah so it's that kind of thing that i have my students think about as well cool so i think it's a pretty good fit do you learn much from your students in their reports do they sometimes give you insights you hadn't uh Anticipated? I do. I do. Well, first, it's always good as, uh, I guess as they say, I've, I've got a face for radio or for podcasts. Um, I know but the feeling. maybe as your readers can, yeah, well, maybe as your readers or listeners can figure out, I'm, I'm a guy like you are. And it's always great to have um, you know, women react because I, I learn different perspectives, which is why I always knew that Asimov had very few female characters. He has some, but I always knew he had, didn't have many. But it wasn't until I started teaching this that I realized how that makes it harder for female students to get into the story because they don't really have characters that they can identify with. So I, I learned that. Um, particular things in the story, well, there's some things that come up later in the books, but so I won't mention them now, but there, there are just certain passages I had never read a certain way and that, that they did. And you know what? I, I I think they're right. Yeah. Well, so uh, yeah, there are things. I, I know that there are female fans of Foundation. Uh, I've heard from them already, and it's really nice to hear that. And for any out there who have listened to the first five episodes and don't know what's coming, there are definitely more 
engaging female characters to come. And I'm horrified that I have to voice them and uh, to stay with my pattern. Unless anybody out there wants to sign up and be my female character voice, that would be wonderful. But on a a more uplifting note, um, something else, you know, I've learned about them or that they've reminded me is, as you were saying, just how prolific Asimov was because you know, students, at least the better ones, are inquisitive. So they would Google around and, you know, <laughs> Google around, basically, that's our word for consult, you know, the Encyclopedia Galactica. And they would, you know, look up the Asimov entry and, you know, then they'd be all spoiled and they'd pretend not to be. But before that happened, they would see that the guy wrote on, what is it, every topic under the Dewey Decimal System. Um, philosophy and history and literature and the Bible. So, yeah, I wanted to ask, ask you, Joel, since you, you're recently reading his autobiography, what's your take on that? Like, why? I definitely have a take on that because in a lot of ways, that's how I felt I bonded with him because I felt we have so much in common. And the main thing is the boundless curiosity in every in every direction. What they now call ADHD, I believe. <laughs> Um, and he may very well have been diagnosed with that if that was a thing back then. And they probably would have stuck him on Ritalin or something and it might've changed completely who he was. And he might've not at all been, he might've been like a a successful scientist, a lab scientist, uh, suffering with uh, not doing what he wanted to really do. And I'm really glad that he did what he did. But I think... What I think about this is that he needed a, a release for those mental wanderings, and and this and writing was just what he needed. He was never a drinker. He didn't do drugs. When he needed therapy, when he was depressed or anxious, he wrote. And he said this often happened. In, you know, there were plenty of times when he would uh, run into something just horrific in his life, and some terrible pressure and all he would do is sit down and write. And he said, that was great therapy. So I think that's really nice. Yeah. That's a nice example of how to, how to treat things instead of like taking drugs and and drinking. And yeah, for me, it's, it's true that podcasting makes me feel better. Doing anything creative makes me feel better, but it it had a downside, obviously Uh, his, this pattern and we talked about it a little bit with, but I think it really ruined his first uh, marriage uh, with Gertrude. Uh, she talked about how she, why don't you just spend some time traveling? Why don't you, when on your deathbed, you're going to be t- horrified with all the things you didn't do. And he just kind of uh, trolled her and responded saying, uh, on my deathbed, I'll, all I'm going to be thinking is, uh, why didn't I write more? And uh, <laughs> that's, that's Asimov. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I, I know there's also a, a connection that Asimov had with a, a different area that I know almost nothing about. So I can go on and on, uh, to some extent, about his interest in history. So, Joel, maybe you or your listeners know that he, at one point, had contemplated getting a second PhD, one in yeah. history. Uh, so his, his PhD was in chemistry, but he had contemplated I, I know he regretted not getting a, 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 mm. a PhD in history at one, a couple times. He thought that yeah. was... That would have been better for him. Yeah, in, in fact, that's something else that my students, I hope, hope you'll forgive me if I'm weaving around a bit and answering, but something else that I've learned from my students, I've had classics majors and history majors who filled me in on 
the actual parallels that Asimov was drawing on. So we know, or at least some of us know, that Asimov loved Edward Gibbon's Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, all upteen volumes of it. Read it twice. And, yeah, Not read it twice. Many people can say that. I know. And I've actually looked at it. I haven't read it other than I read like the first paragraph and, you know, spoilers, the last paragraph. Can I, it's not a spoiler if it's in the title, right? Um, Rome falls there. I gave it away. (laughs) Hope you don't get too much hate mail for this. Um, But what I did appreciate was it's really well-written and it's got these big overarching themes and Asimov was approaching his writing, trying to model some of his writing on the decline and fall and there were some, well, I don't, I don't want to anticipate too much, but your very next episode on Bel Rios, or Riose, the, the general, uh, apparently was modeled after a historic Roman general. And yeah, Cleon, that too. Yeah, and Cleon II, the emperor, was modeled after a historic Roman emperor. So there are these kind of things that I just didn't know. Um, I do want to say one other thing on the history context that was really interesting to me. Uh, I know you're a history buff, and I... In my misbegotten youth, I was a history major before I saw the light. Uh, but somehow I had I had missed this entire historical epic called the, the Greek Dark Ages or the Bronze Age Collapse. It's a oh, historic. It's amazing. Yeah. It's amazing. So maybe I'll stop babbling if you want to describe uh, uh, what actually, did happen. I call out a great book on the, the Bronze Age Collapse uh, by Eric Klein. It's called 1177 BC, I believe. I hope I got that year right. The book was awesome to me. It like really brought it to life of what an amazing era it was just a couple hundred years before then that it was uh, the most cosmopolitan era humanity had ever experienced with trade crossing the Mediterranean in all directions and major empires interacting with Egypt and the Hittites to the north and the Mycenaeans to the west and Crete fell a little bit earlier, uh, but uh, the Minoans, but uh, some, there's so many amazing stories that we'll never know out of that period uh, because the collapse was so total and so much uh, happened so quickly that uh, and so much of it was just so devastating, like entire cities just burned to the ground. Uh, and some of what the ironic thing is that's how we know some of what we know is from those cities burning to the ground because mm. white tablets get uh, bakes their uh, content bakes them hard more durable and we would have lost we would have forgotten a lot of that stuff if it hadn't been for them burning down so it's some of the most disastrous sites are where we get our knowledge you know the ones who succeeded didn't give us mm-hmm. the knowledge so, so that's the silver lining, but the cloud is that it was a complete collapse of Mediterranean civilization that set set them back centuries. So, and I'm sure mm-hmm. as they were approaching that collapse, they thought it was unthinkable that that. That's could exactly exactly what I was going to say. Yeah. So I don't I don't know the specifics, but I had a classics major student who's now getting a PhD, I think, at Oxford um, in classics. So he he knew the material better than I did, but he would say things like. There were whole sorts of industries or techniques that were just lost. So people forgot how to do X, Y, or Z, whatever that is. They forgot how to make this kind of pottery, or they forgot this. There were whole things that were lost. And something I try to impress upon my students is, 
yeah, it might seem like Asimov's, you know, decline and fall of the galactic empire is, yeah, it's far-fetched. It's science fiction after all, you know, emphasis on the fiction. And yeah, there was this decline and fall of the Roman empire, but, you know, there were Roman states and then there was the rise of early modern Europe. And depending upon how you want to read the Middle Ages, they maybe weren't so-called dark because there was still progress and advancement. In fact, the Dark Ages is a term obviously retroactively applied to it. So, so my students sometimes think, yeah, the Asimov story, that, that can't happen. And then, then we do talk, well, actually, the Roman fall was serious, and even potentially more serious was the Bronze Age collapse. And Asimov is focused not just on, on those historical examples, but on the possibility that this could always happen, that there could always be a fall. And what do we do? So one reason that I have them read the short story Nightfall is that it's about that. It's about the fall of civilization. And that is the fall of night, the literal and the metaphorical. And then I have them read that right before we start the Foundation Trilogy. So they think, Mm -hmm. as they start reading the trilogy, the encyclopedists, the very first part of book one, they think, I see, I see, this is how we stop the fall of civilization. You know, the Bronze Age collapse and the Roman fall and the nightfall on, you know, in his short story. We just gather lots of smart people and have them write books. Because that seemed to mm-hmm. be, after all, they think that's what's lost, right? We lose libraries. The Library of Alexandria is later, but we lose libraries. We lose information. Science turns into religion, Asimov talks about in Nightfall. He doesn't disparage religion, um, but he says it's a repository where people don't always know what, what, what it's a repository of. But still, it's a way to hold on to some knowledge. So, yes, wonderful. Selden has these encyclopedists, right? These however many families, you know, they're the men with their, you know, those women and children. I mean, there's another case where Asimov could have had mm-hmm. women encyclopedists too. But anyway, here they're writing an encyclopedia. So you asked me, you know, whether I have any anecdotes that's maybe the biggest anecdote, just how gung-ho, you know, three cheers for Encyclopedia Galactica they are until they get to the very end of the encyclopedists and they learn that it was all a lie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's a great uh, turn. And it, that's only one of the first of the uh, uh, great twists that Asimov delivers uh, going forward and uh, coming up in future volumes for anyone listening to the podcast who hasn't read it. Uh, Foundation and Empire has some amazing twists. Mm. Um, but going back to what you were just saying a little bit, Asimov also was a huge history buff, you mm-hmm. know, going back to the Greeks, going back to, he wrote an entire uh, history of the Bible, Old and New Testament, two complete volumes. And I read them just not that long ago, a couple of years ago, uh, finally got around to it and found them in the library. Just bril- you know, brilliant stuff. And it's so much more readable than the Bible. You know, it's, uh, it's just, and he doesn't do it in a, like a, a contentious, you know, anti-religious kind of state of mind. He doesn't like say, like, listen to these silly people thinking this or that, you know, he puts it in the cultural context and he's, he's really just trying to get at the real stories that were going on that, that behind all that. And it's obvious that, the the fact that uh, the 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 residents of that area, you know, the Hebrews, were able to write their history so eloquently uh, was in, you know enormously powerful, and that's still you know 
driven so much of what's happened to the current time. And he really respected that. And I think there there is a lot he respects in religion without being a believer. And that's, uh, but again and again, in the subtext of the foundation. But there, another thing I wanted to mention related to that is in his love of history, he also came to love theater. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he saw history as just, you know, an endless succession of very entertaining stories and enter- very entertaining characters. And the the rise and fall of power was always like a huge part of that. And he just, uh, that's what foundation is built on. You know, it's like it, taking those, that history of uh, human sociology and the, the the waxing and waning of power and the kinds of temperaments that leaders and you know megalomaniacs uh, have uh, and uh, you know putting that into twenty thousand years in the future and mm-hmm, nothing's really mm-hmm. changed. Yeah, well, that's one of the beauties of science fiction. Going going back to the thought experiment idea, instead of talking about well, for him maybe it was uh, World War Two Europe and then Cold War Europe. Right, his his the era during his formative life. Instead of talking about the Axis and the Allies or the the communists and the so-called Free West, he talked about you know emperors on distant planets in the distant future who controlled countless stars and countless star systems. So it was a way to um, to explore these issues without well, without the nitty-gritty, you know, politicking of what was going on around him. Now, I'm not saying he was exploring the Cold War issues in the original trilogy, though maybe, maybe some of that comes up in the later books, where he seems to return to the themes of you know, free will and the right way of organizing a government. But just for him, the government's the, the size of the galaxy. But it's still the same kind of questions. It's still, you know, playing in thought yeah, instead of playing yeah. in, in act. Right. Um, do you know anything about David Deutsch? I don't. Oh, you should look into him. I just discovered him just uh, um, recently. Uh, I saw a, a YouTube video where he talks about uh, the great monotony of uh, cosm- in cosmology, mm-hmm. uh, which is the time from the Big Bang. He said was the Big Bang was the the moment uh, there were uh, the most significant moment of innovation in the in uh, cosmic history uh, mm-hmm. and what came right after it with the development of the first stars and the first galaxies. Uh, but that once that was finished, for the next 14 billion years, nothing r- much was new. It was just a replication of those things. Very simple patterns that just replicated on this colossal time and distance scale and until a few uh hundred million years ago you know when multicellular life appeared mm-hmm. on this planet actually even before that uh, when uh, the first photosynthesis mm-hmm. started and the planet changed dramatically uh by based on life and it's uh he, he claims that now humans are the first species to develop explanatory power. And explan- explanatory power, he thinks, is a mechanism by which humans can change the galaxy 
and eventually move move out into the entire galaxy and become a dominating powerful force and it, well, like modifying what is going well, on. The, the first species we know of, I'm, I'm still hoping. Yeah. And he <laughs> that, qualifies that it with, as we know of you know, through the whole thing, but um, yeah, it's, well, this, it's a really fascinating topic. Uh, right. Well, well, it's I got shades. It. It's got shades of Carl Sagan who would talk about how um, with the dawn of intelligence, the universe finally came to know itself. Is reality created or gave rise to the sort of thing that can know reality, yeah. whether we call it explanation or, or self-knowledge. And that also reminds me of the, the short story that I end my Plato Asimov class with. So for almost the whole class for reading the Foundation Trilogy, we start with Nightfall because that primes students to worry about what happens when things fall. And then we get the response in the trilogy, you know, spoilers, because we're not done on your podcast with it, but we get Asimov's answer. And then I end the class with the story I shared with you called The Last Question, where the last question asked is basically what happens when, when entropy increases, when the universe, when all, when disorder takes reigns over order and the universe comes to an end. And I'm not going to give away that answer either. But the way no, I read Asimov say, is... It's a short story that everybody should read. It's Yeah, and, uh, and, you know, and, and, and Google it. I, it might be public domain at this point, or if it's I, not... I think there's actually a, a YouTube version of it that's very nicely narrated. Uh, 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 I, I found it, but haven't watched it yet. I've been meaning to, because uh, I've read it uh, a while back and want to experience it again. Yeah, I know. It's a great story. So, so the sort of the meta question that I ask in my class is... Um, what do we do with these cycles of history? So in, in Nightfall, the short story, it seems like they're inevitable. And then in the Foundation Trilogy, hey, we've got psychohistory that can help predict the future. And hey, we have the Foundation that can help limit the interregnum between decline and fall. And hey, as we're going to see, we've got some other things that may prevent future declines and falls. Right? That comes up in the, the book called The Second Foundation, and it involves the entity known as the second foundation. But then by the time we get to the last question, well, I'm not sure. I'll, you know, I'll let your listeners find out for themselves. Yeah, we're a ways I, off from that. Um, yeah. And I, I hope I have the, uh, the endurance to make it through uh, uh, podcasting all seven novels. Because wow. I think the, the last ones, um, well, there's two sequels and two prequels, mm -hmm. which I hadn't read until last summer. And uh, I was really blown away by them because I, I they're, they're different in that, mm -hmm. it, that he's he wrote them 40 years later. And he, uh, he took a long break from science fiction and wrote mostly fiction, uh, nonfiction for, um, you know, most of his, the middle of his life uh, with a few exceptions. And, uh, but he got back to it eventually. And it's just, uh, I'm so glad he did because uh, the, he, he realized, I think that, the story wasn't complete in terms mm -hmm. of it was supposed to last a thousand years and, and mm -hmm. it didn't, didn't go that long. Uh, and also that he wasn't entirely satisfied with how he'd wrapped it up, I think, and that it didn't feel right to him. And he uh, spent the last few uh, novels really pondering what, how it should have wrapped up. And it's, uh, I think it's a fascinating introspection that he takes us on in those last novels. If you, um, if you read them, they're, they're, they're quite something.
And you also get to, uh, after the sequels, you get the prequels and you get the, all the uh, backstory on Harry Seldon and how, you know, Mm -hmm. the beginning of the, uh, the story, which Mm -hmm. uh, turns out there's a ton of material there too. Yeah, there is, but, but maybe some of my, my final thoughts as I'm privileged to be talking to you, but I don't want to overstay my welcome too much is just to say the, the special place that the original trilogy has, um, for me personally, I take it for you personally, for the whole genre of science fiction. So I can share an anecdote, not from my students, but I've got a colleague who teaches um, English, English literature, and his particular research area, it's really interesting, um, it is the effect or the influence of the decline and fall of the Roman Empire on English literature. So there were many authors who took up the idea of decline and fall and worked it into their novels. And I can't name too many of them, but I can name two. One is Isaac Asimov, and one is J.R.R. Tolkien. There are others as well, but they both have, those two have a decline and fall. Frank Herbert has it and other people have it. But as, as my colleague pointed out, so does Star Wars. Right. It's the empire is falling and what's going to follow it. Yeah. And yeah. yeah right. But there was one particular line that he really, that just like clinched it for me in the prequel trilogy in revenge of the Sith, that moment when the Republic does fall and the empire is announced and is born right shortly before Darth Vader manifests his suit. Maybe you or your listeners know the moment I have in mind uh, Emperor, sorry, Chancellor Palpatine, right, the head of the Galactic Senate, is in the Senate and he declares before everyone that the Republic will be reorganized as. Do you remember what he says, Joel? I do not. I, I, I just watched it, but it's been a while. As the first Galactic Empire. Mm-hmm. And my colleague said to me, Why the heck would he say the first? Right? When, when, Right when George Washington and so on became, I don't know, when Thomas Jefferson wrote the Declaration of Independence, he didn't say, "Ah, I'm now signing the first Declaration of Independence." Right? right? Yeah. I mean, when when I don't know, the United States chose Washington D.C. as its capital or struck the Washington Monument and built it, they didn't say, "Aha, here's the first Washington Monument." So why would he say the first Galactic Empire? And my colleague's response is, "Because he'd read Asimov." Because everybody had in the back of their minds, if they're into science fiction and the idea of galactic empires, that of course there was a first and then there was going to be a second. So you have to say the first because it just became part of the the parlance of sci-fi. Right. And he was such a powerful influence on that. Such a powerful influence. Yeah. Um, uh, One thing I want to add uh, before we we go, uh, this just occurred to me. You were talking about uh, names and th- such in the book, and uh, you remember Cleon the first. Remember mm-hmm. Cleon the first, the emperor, um, the last or the second, the last emperor, I believe that we know about. Then there were mm-hmm. some unnamed ones in the fall, but uh, I read a book that just uh, blew my mind about another book on psychohistory, kind of uh, that was written in uh, or it's placed in the. Uh, the 18th or the 19th century, mid 19th century. And the idea it's by Michael Flynn and it's called in the country of the blind, but it's uh, the premise is fascinating. It's basically Charles Babbage um, 
mm-hmm. came up with the design of the first computer uh, mid 19th century, early 19th century, and never built it. It was he never. Uh, but it, the premise of the book is he did build it, or it was built, and mm. somebody got a hold of it, and uh, basically it, they became psychohistorians, and they became kind of the driving forces behind mod, the modern world by like knowing what was happening and guiding the evolution. And they have splinter groups that break off, and they fight against each other, and it's going on into the modern day. So it was really interesting, uh, but... The point I was going to make about Cleon the first is the science of psychohistory was called Cleology, which from the Latin, uh, which is the, the uh, study of history. Right, because Cleo was the Greek muse of history, I yeah. think. Yeah, I believe you're right. Yeah, history. So I'm thinking Cleon was not entirely a, a coincidence. That Oh, goodness, there's so many names once you start thinking in the trilogy. I love his uh, names. Yeah. yeah, well, that makes one of us. <laughs> I, I think they're, I think they're kind of, I think they're kind of clunky. Um, but here's uh, one, here's yeah. one, here's one I'll share because I listen to your podcast. Maybe this it's morning. because I am has all those names. Yeah, uh, I have to be. That's them. true. That's true. <laughs> but uh, do you do you remember Joel? Because you just mentioned it in the in your most recent episode, uh, or was it not? Who was the um, who was the person who was the high priest of the church who was at the same time the head of the uh, Publius Manlio, uh, the generation or do you before mean the one before that uh, before Polybarosov. right? You know what Polybarosov means? Uh, many truths. Many truths. That's wow. what he was. I didn't really he think sp- about that. He spoke yeah. many of the truth, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's right. Yeah, I, I imagine you could probably uh, uh, analyze a lot of his names and figure out. Yeah, where, some of them I haven't figured out. Them. Some of them I yeah. think he just made up. But he some seemed of them to like do. these two-syllable first mm-hmm. and last names: Hober, Mallow, Salvor, Harden, Hari, mm-hmm. Selden. Uh, yeah, mm-hmm. yes, most of them are like that. But uh, I don't know where he came up with them, but they they work for me. <laughs> me too. All right. Well, uh, anything else we need to talk about, or are we just going to move on? Well, I think maybe uh, we should save it, save some other things for later. When uh, after we uh, uh, finish another series, another uh, of uh, Selden Crisis, maybe we can come back and talk again. Well, I'd, I, I'd love to. As I said in my initial email to you, which you kindly read aloud. I'm happy. I'm flattered to participate. There's nothing like the trilogy, but if um, if a way to help you is to be quiet and never bother you again, Joel, that's okay too. So I would love to come back. I'm at your discretion. However, you think I would be okay. interesting for your listeners. Well, thank you very much for taking part in this and uh, letting our listeners know about this amazing course you teach um, and your insights that I think are really powerful and really fascinating. So um, thanks for being a part of this and um, this change of pace between seasons and before we get back to just me reading. And My pleasure, Joel. Thank you. Well, I hope you all enjoyed that as much as I did. I'm very grateful and honored to have Nathaniel on the show, 
and I hope I can have him back for similar appearances later on when he can more freely discuss some of the philosophical implications of the later volumes of this series. Before wrapping up, I want to acknowledge a couple of podcasts that I have found hugely inspirational and would encourage my listeners to sample. First, as a big fan of ancient history, I've been entranced by some of the earliest stories humankind has produced. Some of the most epic story cycles came down to us from the works of the mysterious author or authors known as Homer, the Iliad and the Odyssey, the first of which tells the tale of the semi-mythical Trojan War some thousand or so years BCE. If you like stories like that, you'll love Trojan War, the podcast, as well as the later Odyssey, the podcast. Jeff Wright is an amazing storyteller, and I modeled some of my approach to the retelling of Foundation off of his wonderfully dramatic recreation of these ancient tales, including a lot of the backstory with expert analysis. They're both really fun shows, and I encourage my listeners to dive in. My favorite podcast, however, without a doubt, is Literature and History, hosted by Doug Metzger. No one in podcasting works harder than Doug at putting together extremely polished productions, covering the history of Anglophone literature, starting with the earliest tales of the ancient Near East, through the works of classic Greece and Rome, and including some 20 episodes on the most influential work ever produced, the Old and New Testaments of the Bible, and many of the apocryphal works. Besides being a master storyteller and analyst, Doug is also an amazingly talented and creative musician. He composes and produces all of the background music for his show, and includes a fun comedy song at the end of almost every episode. I was extremely fortunate to engage Doug's awesome narrative talents with my very own first podcast, Planet and Sky, The Deeper Story. Oh, did I forget to tell you about Planet and Sky? I guess I did. This was a podcast version of a rock opera I composed and performed in. A cosmic love story between a planet and its atmosphere told in a science fiction context. Yeah, it's a bit weird, but it came to me and I had to tell the story. The music is available online, credited to the Max Wyvern Band, a group headed by my alter ego from my days playing bass in a band called Jupiter Sheep. I'll add links in the show notes for this as well. The podcast is a deeper exploration of the story than the lyrics of the songs provide, and Doug graciously contributed his prodigious talents in editing and narrating my story. Back to Foundation, and a couple of items directly related to Asimov. I want to mention a couple of great resources you'll want to know about that might be helpful in understanding Asimov's literary history and the future history timeline he created. A guy named Luigi D'Amelio has produced an amazing series of videos at his YouTube channel, Foundation Era, focused mostly on previewing the upcoming Apple TV Plus series on Foundation. He does an amazing job of deconstructing the limited hints available in the official teaser trailer and a recent sizzle reel unveiled at Apple's WWDC conference. A recent video, however, covers Asimov's future timeline in detail, including books outside of the Foundation series, notably the Robots and Empire series that mostly coexist in the same universe as Foundation. I'll link to this video in the show notes, but I encourage listeners to enjoy all of Luigi's excellent videos. Lastly, a listener named William Woolard 
emailed me recently and shared a very cool resource he's put together. A Google Sheet listing every book Asimov wrote in chronological order to assist him with his very modest aspiration of reading every single thing the great master has written. This might be just a little too ambitious for most of us. It certainly is for me. But the sheet is a great guide to what is available and a wonderful view into Asimov's prodigious output. He's given me permission to post it publicly, and I'll share this link in the show notes as well. William also blew my mind recently by taking Mike Topping's artwork and applying it in the video game Gran Turismo to show a car rolling around the globe emblazoned with a gigantic Selden Crisis logo. He surely knows how to tickle a podcaster's heart. By the way, this also inspired me to order some Selden Crisis stickers, so email me at joel at seldencrisis.net if you want one. Hopefully, I've given you all a few distractions to indulge in while I prepare the second season of Selden Crisis for release in just a few weeks. When we return, we'll be back to the standard format as we launch into the amazing Foundation and Empire and meet another classic batch of Asimovian characters, including Dusambar, the surviving son of Onambar, described in The Sad Tale in The Merchant Princes, the heroic foundation trader Lathan Devers, and the man who will pose the greatest existential threat to the growing foundation yet in the imperial general Belriose. Be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts to be sure to be informed when the next episode drops, And if you can, please review the show on Apple Podcasts to help spread the word. Until then, perhaps read a little Asmob.